This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on What the Hack, does your face actually belong to you? The fact is, you give up your right to privacy the second your face appears online. This week's guest, New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill, explores these questions and more as she talks about her book, Your Face Belongs to Us. Welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Asmer, tell us a little bit about yourself and and what got you into this topic. I am a technology journalist at The New York Times, and I have been writing about privacy for the last 10 plus years, including recently for this book, Facial Recognition Technology. So it's the topic of your new book, which is Your Face Belongs to Us. What is facial recognition technology all about? I mean, we've come a long way since the days of Bertillion measurements. Uh, well, Bertillion, yeah. Kashmir, you, uh, we have something in common. that We wrote a book called Swiped, and we also wrote about Bertillion. You, you kind of can't avoid it. Identification, though, has definitely added some tricks to the basic body measurements that Bertillion used to catalog and identify criminals. Bert- Bertillion or is it Bertillon? Bertillon is Bertillon, but you know, here in America, we say Bertillon. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, but the thing is, it's similar tech. Uh, facial recognition, at least the, the bare bones of it, start with, uh, you know, similar technology. You know, the stuff that allow Travis. I'm sure you do this. You know, you to open your phone, for example. No, not even a little bit. I do not use any kind of biometric verification. None. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I mean, this is how they tried to do facial recognition technology for a long time, right? Like, they were literally, in those early days, kind of the 1960s in Silicon Valley, before it was Silicon Valley, you know, taking rulers, holding up to the face, doing measurements. But what's different now is that we kind of don't know exactly what computers are doing to perform facial recognition technology, which has gotten so much better because they train these systems by giving them a bunch of faces. You know, Facebook did this with, they, they had users that tagged their face in thousands of photos. And so they give those thousands of photos to the computer and say, hey, this is one person, you know, learn to analyze the face. And so, you know, we don't know, they, a lot of the researchers I talked to describe neural net technology, you know, this kind of artificial in, in intelligence system model as a black box. And you kind of don't know exactly what's getting analyzed, but clearly it's, you know, looking at the face, uh, gathering information. So listen, I I mean, the eyes are really important here. And and with Bertillon, Bertillon, you know, it it started with, you know, the distance between the pupils, which we're all familiar with. Anyone who has glasses is familiar with that measurement. But the measurements that uh, they're taking on the eyes now, I'm sure it involves all kinds of angles and uh, really nuanced measurements. Somebody has to know. I mean, you say it's in a black box, but the people who made the black box must know. Well, it's inter- interesting. One of the researchers I talked to is Matthew Turk, and he was at MIT Media Lab in the 90s and helped make this huge breakthrough. Uh, it, it was called eigenfaces. That's what he he called it. It was kind of a German term for it. was a new way of doing facial recognition technology where they had the computers kind of uh, create a couple of different facial types and figure out if a face matched based on, you know, how much it was like each one of those facial types. And it was it was a very different way of analyzing the face than it happened before, where it was just these measurements. He was called Facebook got sued at one point in this in Illinois, which has a very strong law that protects people's faces and says you have to get consent. And he looked at Facebook's algorithm. One name for it is DeepFace. 
spent a long time, you know, at, at Facebook headquarters looking at how this works. And the Illinois law protects the use of the geometry of your face. And he made this expert argument that that's not what Facebook was doing, that their system is, you know, looking at the face at a pixel level where it's not about the distance between the features. And this did not fly with the judge. He was kind of like, well, the spirit of the law is a face print and I don't yeah. care how the computer's doing it. But but that was his argument. And that's that's what researchers are saying to me. Yeah. So and if it's pixels, too, it's going to pick up on pigmentation. So if someone has a little melasma on their face or a mole or, you know, their eyebrows are a certain way, that's always going to look the same way on a pixel level. Casper, you quoted somebody about a third of the way through your book, William Gibson which is the future's already here, it's just unevenly distributed. So tell us, who's on that distribution list? For years, many tech companies approached facial recognition with caution. In fact, in 2011, the then chairman of Google said it was the one technology the company had held back because it could be used in a very bad way. And think about that. It was too Pandora's boxy for Silicon Valley, the world's most enthusiastic Pandora's box openers. But now, Something important has changed, and it is because of this guy, Juan Tontat, and his company, Clearview AI. And I'll let him describe what it does. Quite simply, Clearview is basically a search engine uh, for faces. So anyone in law enforcement can upload a face to the system, and it finds any other publicly available material that matches that particular so for Clearview AI specifically, I think people who know about the company know that police are using it. But what I found when I started digging into the history of it is that the earliest beta users were kind of billionaires and Silicon Valley investors. And the company was trying to raise money. So, you know, they were courting people who were wealthy and they would kind of pitch the app, which, you know, they had scraped billions of photos from the internet and paired it with this very powerful facial recognition algorithm so you could upload someone's face and then pull other photos of them that were found online well, along with links to where they appeared. So they said, hey, this could be great for preventing shoplifters. I mean, the, the fact that celebrities used it to start makes perfect sense to me because it is a godlike power. And, you know, it gives you the eye of Sauron. You can find people. You can figure out who's who. In that sense, it seems a little authoritarian. And, and, and that's backed up a little bit by the people who backed it in the beginning and users. Can you talk a little bit about that? So the person I think of as kind of being at the heart of the company is Juan Tontat, this uh, really this tech obsessive, you know, coding from a very young age, grew up in Australia, uh, was kind of bullied because he's uh, half Vietnamese and there was some Asian racism in Australia. But yeah, loved computers, you know, shut himself in his bedroom in high school and watched these free online videos from MIT to teach himself how to code. Goes to college, is very bored with his computer science professors and spends a lot of time online on Y Combinator, Hacker News, as it's called, and just gets really excited about the idea of doing a startup. And he gets an invitation to just come to Silicon Valley and, and try to make it there. This one investor says, you know, I'll give you a little funding. Because Facebook was exploding at the time. It just opened up to third-party developers. This is 2007. And so Fanta drops out of college, flies across the world to San Francisco, and, you know, basically starts doing apps. First on Facebook, then the iPhone comes out. He starts building games. And he's just kind of trying to make it without a lot of success. He doesn't really have any incredible ideas. And then he moves around 2015 to New York. And he really falls in with a very conservative crowd, you know, associated with a lot of alt-right types, uh, becomes very friendly with a guy named Charles Johnson or Chuck Johnson, who is kind of known for a site called Got News, which was like some race baiting type, uh, type in uh, news stories. And they go together to the Republican National Convention because this is when Trump is being anointed the candidate and they're just, they're like part of that crowd that's just really excited about Trump and how different he is and how how unusual and atypical a candidate he is and how he just says what's on his mind, has no filter. And has a loose relationship with rules. And facts and yes. <laughs> uh, 
Good evening. I'm Peter Thiel. And uh, Peter Thiel is talking at the convention. He's one of the keynote speakers, you know, famous Silicon Valley investor. I'm not a politician, but neither is Donald Trump. He is a builder, and it's time to rebuild America. So Juan and uh, Charles Johnson get together, Peter Thiel. And so this is where the seeds of the company start. And according to Charles Johnson... He said he and Juan Tantat were talking about there's, you know, all these strangers at this conference. And we'd love to know, uh, be able to tell in real time kind of who should we talk to, who should we avoid, who's a friend, who's a foe. And they start talking about some kind of app that could analyze people. Peter Thiel is um, famously litigious, so I would like to be very careful about how I say this. <laughs> well, I, I, I can go through some of his views. So Peter Thiel believes that death is not inevitable and, yes. yep. you know, has has talked about blood transfusions as a way of kind of staying young. Mm-hmm. He believes in, or at one point believed in seasteading, which is the idea that you create an island, you know, man-made island outside of any country's jurisdictions so that you can uh, live by your own rules. He's kind of classic libertarian. Sounds like a sea captain vampire you're describing here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he also, but he's also a murderer of media sites. Yes. Uh, And this is something that they talked about, according to Johnson, because all three of them had had run-ins with Gawker or its tech site Valleywag, had had things written about them they did not like. Mm -hmm. And so when they met, Peter Thiel had just basically killed off Gawker by funding lawsuits against it. I got Gawkered for trying to to troll Glenn Beck, and I deserved it. I got nailed. I also got gawkered, but it was not too horrible. But getting gawkered becomes something else entirely. If you imagine for a minute what would happen if a gawker reporter had access to Clearview and publicly accessible closed circuit cameras. It would almost be like you're living in Blade Runner. Yeah, or Black Mirror. At any rate, it, 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 all these fictionalized uh, dystopic situations involving information are completely real now. So Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. Let's talk about weight loss. Most of us have been there, struggling with the ups and downs. You lose some weight, then it creeps back. But forget those endless cycles of juice cleanses, soup diets, and the latest fad workouts. There's a better way. The Rope Body Program pairs a weekly weight loss shot with a real lifestyle chain so you can lose weight and actually keep it off. Need support? Rope's got you covered every step of the way. And guess what? You can do it all from the comfort of your own home. No more doctor's appointments, no more waiting rooms. It's that simple. Ready to take charge of your weight? 
head over to row.co slash Adam to sign up today. Average weight loss is 15 to 20% in a year. That's with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to row.co slash Adam. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash A-D-A-M. So from your book, it sounds like there were companies that actually had either the resources or the technology or both um, to do facial recognition, but didn't because of either legal or moral um, implications of it. Did that just open things up for Clearview? When I first heard about Clearview AI, a lot of people, you know, thought it was a technological breakthrough that they did this. But in fact, you know, other companies had gotten there in Google and Facebook and decided that they didn't want to release it, you know, that it was too dangerous or too uh, legally risky. And what has happened in the last few years is open source technology and much more sharing of kind of these computer techniques. And so for somebody who has just, you know, some technical savvy, they can take these powerful AI technologies. And if you, you know, have the computing power and uh, the ability to store a lot of data, I mean, you can do really radical things. And so that's what happened with Clearview AI. It's the kind of building blocks were there. And it was just a matter of being willing to cross that ethical line and put this all together. And they did. This wasn't a technological breakthrough. This was a moral breakthrough. I mean, the, the big breakthrough is until now in society, when you were walking around, you know, in a big city, I'm not talking about a small town where a lot of people, you know, know who everyone else is. But in, in a big city, you know, you can walk around anonymously. You can go into the store and buy condoms and kind of assume no one's going to know who you are and, and what that means for you, as long as you use cash. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, lots of people tracking it. You know, you can have a sensitive conversation over dinner and pretty much assume the strangers are, won't be able to kind of connect the dots about what you're talking about. You can go to a protest and you know, assume the police aren't going to take a photo of you and, and, and be able to track everyone who was there. You can go to a Planned Parenthood. And if you walk out and there's protesters outside, they're not going to take a picture of your face and know who you are. And so what Clearview AI was doing was taking away that ability to be anonymous because they were making faces searchable in the same way that you know, Google made our name searchable and and kind of organizing all of this online information that has been gathered about us over the last two decades, some of which we put out there ourselves, and just making it available with a click of your face. For, for uh, authoritarian adjacent professions like law enforcement where you have, you know, and, and I mean, obviously there's, there's, I'm, I'm not dinging the police on any, uh, in any way, shape or form or the FBI, but there, this is a new day and age where, you know, the days of the, the world depicted in a show like The Wire, where they were sitting in cars, taking photographs of people and trying to figure out who everyone was, those days are over. It, it's not just a, a full frontal driver's license type photograph that that is uh, able to be re-identified with a person, is it? Yeah, I mean, talking to police officers, part of why they were so enamored of Clearview is that for the first time with the fa face recognition databases they'd been using previously, the state databases, it was just older technology. And if the person wasn't staring straight into the camera, they really weren't getting good results. But the officers told me, you know, with Clearview AI, the person could be looking down away from the camera, wearing a baseball cap, wearing sunglasses. I mean, I've seen it work. Juan Tantat, the CEO, has run the, the search on me. I covered my mouth and my nose, and it's still able to pull up photos of me. It's really astounding how far the technology has come along. That said, it still makes mistakes. I have written about a handful of people who have been arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. And so it's it's a, it's a difficult thing about technology where it can be so powerful and so accurate and then it can make those mistakes. But because it is so powerful other times, you can fall into the trap of thinking, oh, this this must be true. The computer said it. Well, we know the facial recognition, it's still imperfect. Uh, the question, though, with 
these folks at Clearview is how did they start to get it right when so many people for so many years have gotten it wrong? It wasn't specific to them. I thought it was at first, but it was because I, like many people, hadn't realized the advances that had been made really in the last kind of five years um, with the advent of neural net technology. Facial recognition had just gotten much, much more powerful. And there had been these problems for years of bias and you know, algorithms that just worked best on white men and not as well on anybody else. And the vendors kind of eventually took the criticism to heart and they trained these algorithms with more diverse faces. And so it really had, it had gotten more powerful. And how it does depends on how much information is in the what they call the probe image, like the image that you're uploading to run a search on. And if you do it with like an iPhone camera selfie, that's a very high resolution image and you're likely to get more and better results. The performance declines when we're talking about like a grainy surveillance footage still. As they say in engineering, garbage in, garbage out. But really, face recognition technology had come a long way and partly it was just so many faces on the internet and just so much good data for these companies trained with, just trained with and just computers getting more powerful, you know, more powerful computers. Where did the data actually come from? So Facebook is one of the companies that made a big breakthrough. This was back in, I can't remember exactly, it was 2015 or 2016 with DeepFace. That's when all those boxes would appear on all your photographs saying, do you want to identify this person? It looks like it's cashmere. Yeah, well, yeah. when Facebook Facebook first released photo tagging in 2010, and it really, it didn't actually work all that well, but then they kept working on it. I talked to this engineer at, at Facebook, and he, he realized he could use that same technique with faces, and he had the greatest data set in the world. You know, all of these Facebook users who had very studiously tagged themselves in thousands of images. He had just millions of labeled data sets. And so he was able to take that, you know, people who tag themselves in dark rooms and blurry photos. And so was able to use that to create a very powerful algorithm. And what has become common in the academic community is then publish about it. And then other people learn the technique and build on it. And so that's really what helped it get very powerful is us in our, our, our putting our photos out there and tagging them, telling the computer, hey, this is me. J. Robert Oppenheimer, after he helped develop the atomic bomb, said, when you see something that is technically sweet, you go ahead and do it. And you argue about what to do about it only after you've had your technical success. Okay, that sounds like someone who's saying, yes, moral implications aside, this is super cool. What role does the pursuit of technical sweetness play in this story that you tell? <laughs> well, it is the title of part two in the book. And it's because I kept hearing that from, I was interviewing, you know, engineers and scientists who have been working on facial recognition technology going back decades. For so long, the researchers in this field thought that facial recognition was just a uniquely human intelligence and that a computer would never be able to do this to recognize that you're the same person when you're smiling and when you're frowning or when you're wearing a hat or sunglasses. I was talking to the people who made the breakthroughs that put us on the path to Clearview AI. And I said, did you ever think to the future when this works really well? Are you worried about it being used by authoritarian governments? Or were you thinking about race and bias when you were only using photos of white men to test and train your technology? And they said, you know, no. Like, it was hard to imagine how it might be when it got good. And so it was this chain of people who were saying, someone else is going to think about the downsides of this. But first, we just want to make it happen. We just, we want to accomplish this, like, how, how far can we take this? What are computers capable of? Well, I know we uh, discussed a little bit about how the founders of Clearview were, um, just to put it diplomatically, right-leaning. Um, but one thing that ended up being sort of, um, I think, online surveillance's big moment was January 6th, 
where a lot of the people were recognized by photos and then later on prosecuted. As far as that's concerned, is that technically a good usage there or is that something where um, it's still kind of problematic, but just for a different, uh, a different, say, political belief or leaning? Using facial recognition technology to solve crimes is clearly a positive use case. And the people that were most passionate about this within the law enforcement community were child crime investigators who often end up with a photo of abuse kind of on the dark web or someone's account where they just, they have very little to tie it to. Sometimes they don't know even where in the world these these people are, who they might be. And so they were kind of honestly power users of Clearview AI because for the first time, they had a database that could potentially identify somebody anybody, anywhere in the world and also a database that had images of children. You know, at the end of the day, I'm a journalist who's just trying to explain to people what the state of the technology is and what's possible now. I'm not a policy light maker or a lawmaker, but when I look at this, I think, yeah, like I see why this is a powerful tool for, for officers and why they want to use it to solve crimes. But it's this you know, the spectrum of use and deciding, okay, maybe we're using it to solve crimes, but do we want facial recognition technology on every camera around the United States? So when a fugitive goes missing in Pennsylvania again, we can find them like that. Sure. And there was that great example you had in your book of the um, guy that was seen for uh, something with uh, child abuse. I think it was Clearview that was used just to see him in the background of a uh, photo and that helped identify it. Well, that's the good news of what it can do. But then there's the not-so-good news of what it can do. And and you talked about the case of, of Robert Williams, which was a bad Kodak moment, I guess you might say. Yeah, and this, this wasn't Clearview AI. This was a different facial recognition vendor that was used. But So Robert Williams is a suburban dad in Michigan, lives outside of Detroit, and has two young daughters, a lovely wife. And one day, he's at work. And he gets a call from a police officer saying, come turn yourself in. There's a warrant for your arrest. And it's two days before his birthday. So he thought it was a friend pranking him. And they said, well, we're going to come to your work and make a big deal. Anyway, so he gets home and a police car pulls up behind him. And all of a sudden he's getting arrested. And they won't even tell him why. He's like, what are you doing here? Why are you arresting me? And I said, you know what it's about, the stealing, the robbery. And yeah, it turns out Robert Williams was arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. There was a a guy who had walked into a Shinola store and stolen five watches. And there was surveillance footage and they ran it. And Robert Williams was, I think there was a list. The way that these these systems work is they'll rank a bunch of candidates in kind of the, the order of what they're most confident is a good match. And so Robert Williams was ninth on that list. And the human analyst thought he was the best match. And the police did not do much more investigating beyond that. They showed his photo in a six-pack photo lineup to the security analyst who had watched the surveillance footage and she said, yeah, I think it's that guy. And then they pulled pawn shop records. And Robert Williams, he wears actually expensive watches, Breitlings, and he had sold one once at a pawn shop. So to them, they're like, okay, you know, facial recognition says this eyewitness agrees with the computer that he looks a lot like this suspect and he pawned a watch once and this person stole a watch and so he wound up arrested and held in jail overnight charged had to hire a lawyer to fight this case it's crazy it can go really wrong if police aren't pairing this with a real robust investigation because these systems do not always get it right it's interesting because robert williams may have just thought that the call was a scam that he received i mean that's how a lot of these scams start and we cover a lot of those scams on the show here so maybe he just thought, what what the heck is going on? Do, do you think that racial and gender bias is actually built into these systems? Gender and racial bias was definitely built into these systems in the past. It was a problem for a very long time, you know, and and the systems were used despite that problem. They started rolling out facial recognition technology in airports, DMVs, State Department after September 11th in 2001. And one of the vendors I talked to who had their technology being rolled out said, you know, it, 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 
it worked okay. It like wasn't the greatest in the real world. And it did have problems we had to pull out of South Africa because it just failed utterly on people with darker skin. And that was crazy to me because they were actively using it. And I just wonder how many people didn't get their visa because the State Department facial recognition system, you know, flagged them as being somebody else. This has been a problem for a long time. But part of the problem was, again, they weren't training these systems on diverse faces. And now that they've rectified it, it has come a long way. There is a federal lab, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, that does test the accuracy of the hundreds of algorithms that different companies have. And they find that some under test conditions really are not showing, they're not showing what they call differential performance on different groups. One of the things that is striking in this is that many of the countries where this technology is used the most are places that are populated with people who are not Northern European and are darker skinned so that they're going to be harder for these systems to track, but they're being used in an authoritarian setting. The more I hear about it, the more I'm, I have to ask if just this is an opinion thing. Obviously, systems like Pegasus, which is spyware, which you can turn on someone's microphone, you can turn on camera, you can do a lot of things that are really active, aggressive encroachments on people's privacy. When you're talking about images that are willingly proffered online, which many of us do on Instagram and other meta platforms, what does it all mean? And is it as creepy as it sounds to me? Because it does seem to me like the, this clear view mixed with something like Pegasus is just an, a, a, a disaster for human rights. This is something that I worry about, is that the co the compounding of surveillance technologies one on top of another. And it is what we are seeing happen already in places like China, where there's tracking, they're tracking the phone, they're tracking the face, they're making inferences between the phone and the face, and then putting that on top of a social credit score where you are judged on on all kinds of measures of behavior, including paying your bills on time. And then they decide what access to services you have. Like you can't buy a train ticket if you have a low credit score and you can't really subvert the system because they're tracking your face and tracking your phone. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do find the idea of this just kind of continuing unfettered with no rules, no control over the how, how our information is used. I think that we will have a very a kind of chilling world. I mean, very hard to be free in that world. It would be a new kind of caste system based on everything from photographic imagery all the way up to behavioral aspects. It would be like a 360 view of each person and suddenly you would be pigeonholed into one category or another based on a series of actions that may result from everything from youthful irresponsibility to just mistakes that people make. And all of a sudden, your life is now programmed for you. I mean, if you look into China is a great example. I mean, the Uyghur population there is living in, a, in an environment with um, more, I believe I'm right about this, more surveillance cameras per capita than anywhere else in the world. And so the use of this technology yoked to uh, China's desire to surveil various populations could be extremely dangerous. It, it could be. And, and I don't think that that meeting after the RNC with the folks who were dreaming up Clearview were too concerned about that. I, I maybe there maybe I'm wrong and and I will cease and desist if they send me a letter to do so but I'd like them to tell me how I'm wrong because <laughs> it <laughs> seems like it seems to me like it wasn't really part of the the cake mix um like what what if someone uses this for bad purposes I mean I did I did have this moment with Wontontat the first time um which took a lot of kind of investigating and digging to get to him but you know the first time we sat down and he's describing we developed this. We think this is the best use case for facial recognition technology. 
you know, by police to find pedophiles as opposed to pedophiles using it. And I said, yes, but, you know, what you've developed, what you've released, you've opened the door to just ubiquitous facial recognition technology and really just changing our ability to be anonymous. And are you worried about that? And he was silent for a moment and he goes, that's a good question. I'll have to think about that. So here's the deal. I use Yahoo Finance. I use it to make money because it works, not just because they're a sponsor of the show. Heck, I've been using them for years before they ever called to become a sponsor. I do a lot of investing and I need to make split second financial decisions. And that's where Yahoo Finance comes in. I trade stocks and I trade options and you can't trade them in a vacuum. You've got to know what's going on. Yahoo Finance gives you the opportunity to look at the whole picture. I mean, breaking news, editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts. I love the customizable charts. They have it all. At Yahoo Finance, I'm part of a community of over 90 million users. You heard me. 90 million folks use Yahoo Finance because they're helping you on your way to financial success. Visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com, yahoofinance.com. This spring, get out there, enjoy the weather, and recapture the magic of riding a bike with electric e-bike. With an amazing variety of models built for riders of all abilities, it's never been easier to fall in love with riding again. Plus, every electric e-bike ships free and only requires quick, toolless assembly. This is my first ever e-bike, and the experience has just been great. I was a little bit intimidated at first because I hadn't gone biking in a while, but the 500-watt motor that the electric e-bike comes with really gives you a nice little boost, especially if you're trying to go uphill or pick up some speed. Data shows that e-bike riders take their bike out more often. That means... You get more exercise, more exploration, and wait for it, fresh air. And riding an e-bike isn't, like, it's not cheating. It's just making it possible for you to be out there longer on each ride. And speaking of things going a little slower, you can finance electric e-bike for as little as $49 a month. Get into spring with electric e-bikes, the number one selling e-bikes in the nation. Get your adventure started at electricebikes.com. And please mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes.com Where do we go from here? Okay, so now let's let's look at a lighter application of all this. So think about all of the uncredited role in movies. Pretty soon it's going to be possible to identify everybody in a movie or a television series. Even the final battle in Game of Thrones, which you couldn't even tell who the main characters were. It was so dark. Right. So here's my question. Is anonymity dead? I mean, can anybody put together a similar system here? I mean, I don't think anybody. I couldn't put it together. But people with technical savvy can. And there are similar services now that while Clearview AI is limited to police use, there is a public face search engine called PimEyes and any of you could go there right now and you're supposed to upload your own photo. You have to check a box saying this is me and I'm over 18, but they don't have any technical measures in place. I have a subscription so that I can see the whole photo. If you just go to it right now and do it, it'll show you a bunch of little uh, like your faces, but you can't see the whole photo or where it came from. And I have a subscription and I can do 25 searches a day, which I don't know why I would need to search my own face 25 times a day. And yeah, it's $30 per month. The database is, is not as robust as Clearview AI's. It's, you know, hundreds of millions of photos instead of billions. And they didn't scrape the social media sites. And I actually was thinking about it a lot this month because of a woman in Virginia named Susanna Gibson, who's running for office, you know, in a local race. She's a Democrat. She's a nurse. And the Washington Post reported that a Republican operative told them that she had, you know, uh, had, had streamed sex acts on the internet with her husband for tips. And these videos were not linked to her name, but were linked to her face. And I wondered how that operative found them. You know, was he, you know, watching pornography and he stumbled on it? Or he, did he run her face through something like Pim Eyes? And that's, that's how she turned them up. I, I just, I don't know. 
Your face belongs to us. It covers some extremely important ground. We've talked about some of it today. If you could, you know, you spent some time writing this book and you, you probably would like people to walk away with something that they can use in life. What would that be? What do you want? If, if, if people, you know, spend two hours with your book, what do you hope they walk away with? I want them to be prepared for this future and to know that this power is out there and already accessible. So maybe go to PIMIS, maybe find out what's out there on the internet. I want them to know that there is a hopeful tale in this book, and that's that privacy laws work. And if you don't like the idea of being in one of these databases, if you live in Europe, you can get out of them. Here in the United States, if you live in California or Connecticut or Virginia, or Colorado, you have an access and deletion law, and you can go to Clearview AI and you can say, delete. Yeah, I want to see my report. I want to see what you have on me, and I want you to delete my face. And, you know, in Illinois, it kind of, it looks like Clearview probably violated the law there. Privacy law, sometimes people are very resigned about technology, and they say, there's nothing we can do. It's taking our privacy. And I, it, it is not true. Uh, I will say from working on this book, and there's many ways in which we have constrained technologies. We passed wiretapping laws, and that's why the millions of surveillance cameras that surround us in the United States only record our images and don't record our conversations. There is something that you can do on the individual level. If you're so lucky to live in one of those states, you can delete yourself. But at more systemic level, like we need to have pass laws. That is how you decide what happens with technology. Privacy isn't just about what people know about you. It's about the knowledge that gives them control over you. And I think that people have to think of their privacy as a serious asset in their lives and think about all the things that they need to do in order to, to better protect their privacy uh, and to take ownership. Hallelujah. That was beautiful. I'm going to put that on a shirt. It's long. It's kind of long for a shirt. I think, I think <laughs> I'm going to the... get a tattoo and it's just going to go from like one arm all the way across me to part the other of it arm. was your quote. So I, you know, I give you credit for I that. I think I need to give it credit to Alessandro Chisti. He's, he's Italian uh, and has, yeah, very eloquent, um, eloquent quotes. Anyway, Kashmir, this was, was really great. And we can't thank you enough for spending time with us. The book, Your Face Belongs to Us, is a fabulous book and thank you so much for spending time with us today thank you so much for having me on that was a great interview i, I learned a lot when I think about these technologies, I, you know, I apologize to everybody listening who may think that I'm just, you know, the most dour dystopian dude there is on the planet. I, I just, you know, like what, what if there was a breach? There was actually Clearview got breached in 2020. Their entire client list got uh, breached <laughs> and exfiltrated. Well, that's not as bad. At least it wasn't just all the pictures of, you know, Adam going in and out, in and out of in and out burger. Well, that being the case, though, if one of those clients happens to be uh, compromised from the data that they got, then perhaps that surveillance footage could actually be leaked. No hamburgers for you, Adam. No, I remember that breach very well. A lot of law enforcement agencies were very red-faced about that. Yeah, yeah. Now, the question is, what if the clients themselves, not just the list of clients, yeah. the clients themselves end up getting breached with all of that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a quagmire. It really is like a data quagmire, and and I do do worry. I do worry about it. I, I wish I were Travis. Most people do. No, it's not true. That is patently <laughs> false. Well, I haven't <laughs> met most people, but yeah. <laughs> There's no safe zone at all, anywhere, ever, with technology like this. No, no, but there is. If you don't post any pictures of yourself, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of Travis online that wasn't uh, actually. Um, Billy D. Williams. And <laughs> sometimes also use an orangutan. So uh, yeah, I guess you do have the orangutans in your in your online presence. So 
So, I mean, again, our method of avoiding trouble, Adam, it's antiquated. We can't say anymore the best way is not to be there because you are everywhere as a result of technology like this. Yeah, we are always everywhere. That's a fun thought. All right. So, so guys, it is time for a tinfoil swan. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe on and offline. So what's it going to be this week? Yeah, you know what it's going to be this week, Travis. It's going to be not. Ominous, not apparently. Be, <laughs> no, it's not going to be your camera and your computer, because we've already talked about that. But there are other ways in which you can be got. You mean surveilled? Yeah, I guess. I mean, so here's the latest thing that I've learned, and I think it's pretty cool. When I, I worked at The Intercept, I believe that I'm allowed to say, they had some files there that I'm not allowed to mention. Um, well, I'm not allowed to mention what they had, but I think it's pretty much public knowledge what they had. Um, and in order to get into that room, there were a lot of technological stopgaps to keep the stuff that was in that room from getting out into the, the wide world. How many of you have a Faraday bag out there? Raise your hands. I can see no one because this is audio. Probably not many of you. Exactly. Is, is it like something that's made of chain mail? Sort of. Uh, Faraday Cage was developed by Michael Faraday, who was an electrical theorist way back during the time of the English Romanticists, actually. It's a long time <laughs> ago. But he did figure out some cool things, and one of them was the Faraday Cage. And that is that no, no, no radio waves can get through a certain mesh of copper and lead. And so um, the EU, I think specifically France, just recently discovered that the iPhone 12 might be giving off radioactive waves that are not good for you. And as you've heard from all of your friends who are health conscious, cell phones might be a source of, of bad stuff getting into your life by way of different kinds of waves that they attract. So a Faraday cage actually gives you the ability to do two things that are both of them very important. One is to block any of these not good for you waves that may be coming from your phone, emitted from your phone. And the other is nobody can tap into your phone and the contents of your phone through that bag. It is effectively, you put the bag over your phone or your computer. You use the phone, but in the bag next <laughs> to your ear. In the bag, the phone will not work. But when you leave the bag and the phone, a person walking by your phone can't put a phone on top of your phone and steal everything in your phone. But could somebody steal the bag with your phone in? Yes. That is a pretty big loophole there. Yeah. <laughs> what other things can you do besides a Faraday cage if you're worried about your security? I mean, the big one is that if you're traveling someplace, especially if they have a lot of surveillance, you can take the uh, SIM card out of your phone. What does that do exactly, Travis? Uh, it makes you a lot harder to track. So that's where a lot of the GPS coordinates and the like that they can get from your phone are uh, based. I mean, Bo did mention Pegasus. That software can actually turn on your microphone and turn on your camera, especially when you don't know it. As I remember, Jeff Bezos had a dispute with the head of Saudi Arabia who he felt sent him a text that might have put Pegasus software on his phone. Yep. Yeah, and the scary thing about it is it's called a zero-click spyware. In other words, you don't need to actually um, read the text or double-click or open any attachments. Uh, just once it gets sent to your phone, it's on it. And your phone is, don't forget, your phone is a very needy piece of equipment. It is constantly saying, hello, hello, are you there? Are you there? Hello? And it's like, look at me, look at me. Those little requests, those being open to requests, your phone pinging different places to say, I am here, I am here. There are hacks and probably zero day exploits we don't know about that can get into your phone that way. The rule of thumb is your phone is always on. It's always a hot mic. The camera in your computer is always on even when it doesn't look like it's on. It might be filming you. And so if you want to have an argument with somebody that's very silly, do it outside <laughs> without, <laughs> without your with, phone, without your phone, because it really is like you've got to assume that you're being surveilled. And, and if you don't want to be, you have to do things in order not to be. And that does mean 
going into the woods and having a conversation behind a tree. Because if definitely you're having an argument and your phone is around when you're having it, all of a sudden ads for Valium will start showing up on your phone. Well, I'm not sure about all the other uh, types of ways to intercept your phone, but um, when it comes to the Pegasus spyware, there are three things that we know that tend to work to prevent mm. that. Number one is disabling iMessage, since that tends to have access to your phone, and that's the uh, vector for entry for that type of spyware. Uh-huh. Second is disable FaceTime, because that is another camera and voice-enabled app that's on your phone. Right, right. And the other is just keep on applying updates. Um, there are a lot, lot, lot of vulnerabilities and exploits that they're finding all the time for both iPhones and Android phones. Um, and so if you see that there's an update, especially to your base software, not just the apps, apply that immediately. If you're using something that is listening for a trigger word, like Alexa or Siri, you really do need to think twice because the same thing that turns those devices on, the same technology could be turned on its head by a good hacker and used to just get into your life. So think about turning Alexa and Siri off, but if you really like the convenience of having them, bear in mind that your stalker may be really grateful to find that's the true thing about you. So no iMessage, no FaceTime, get those updates. How about the advice that we've given time and again, that if you sense something is a little strange with your phone, turn it on and turn it off? Will that help you at all in a situation like this, or you need to do the other things we just talked about? I think turning off your phone and turning it on again is a great idea, and that should be part of everyone's cyber hygiene, just because it does get rid of those temporary bugs that can get into your phone, but can't survive a reboot. Yeah, and the only other thing I can think of is to check the permissions for your apps. Um, one of the most egregious examples out there, and this was years ago, there was a uh, flashlight app before that became sort of a standard feature of right. phones. And it said that it needed to run access to your contacts, uh, web browsing history. I think, you know, the fingerprints of your children, take your pick. Um, and it was just to turn on the flash on your phone. If you're seeing that your phone's acting a little bit oddly, go through and just see, first of all, do you have any apps that you can delete? But second, just see what permissions those apps have. Travis, I think that's our tinfoil spot. That's our tinfoil spot. Indeed. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin. 